Welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative, a podcast that challenges what it means to be a high performer. Here are your hosts, Lauren Williams and Rob Kalvaroski. All righty, we are live. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dismantling the High Performance Narrative. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, we have our elite high performance coach and former number one draft pick, Lauren Williams. Lauren, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I like that you slid that in there at the end. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's always be, it's always our dream to be picked first overall, right? <laughs> oh man, yeah. It was unexpected, unexpected, but uh, it was a good good feeling for sure. <laughs> Obviously, it didn't come with the the usual million dollar uh, signing bonus, but that's another story. No, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been nice, but no, it did not come with that. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm fired up today. Like we, we, uh, this is the first live session for this series. We're, we're partnering with Fix and Georgian to do a fundraiser for some great charities in Canada with mental health. And as part of that, we have a special guest, Julie Palmer's with us from Fix. Julie, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing well. And, and Julie, like, before before we get into the nuts and bolts of everything, do you want to just tell us about yourself and Fix and like, what do you do for them? Sure. Uh, so I've been working at Fix for almost a year and a half now. I am our product documentation manager, which is just a really fancy wordy uh, way of saying that I am our, uh, our word nerd. Um, so I take care of our documentation on our help center, some of our internal docs, the... Um, text that goes into the UI, all of, all of that fun stuff. Uh, before that, um, I've, I've had a few different tech writing roles. Um, yeah. It's great. I, it's at least one of us is a writer. See, I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, you know, Rob, you should write a book. And I was like, if I want anything to say, I'll just get on the mic and go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like we're here today, like dismantling the high performance narrative. What we're all about here with this new show is really breaking down. One is the stigma that's associated with mental health, but the other part of it is this mm, belief nice, that yeah. everything needs to be perfect. And walk into the clock to go pick up Jane Dalias. And just one second, let me mute somebody. Okay, I think we're good now. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, and we're really much about going in and talking about like, not everything is going perfect on the outside, even though maybe we look like we're performing at a high level, we look like we're, we're doing well. And so Julie, you have a story to, to share with us today about your struggles with mental health. Do you want to just like, can you give us a background on that story? Like what happened with you? Sure, 100%. Uh, so I mentioned off the top that I'm a writer. Um, in addition to that, I'm an avid knitter. And I'm also uh, someone who lives with PTSD. Um, back in 2014, I witnessed an incident of workplace violence at a, a past job. And uh, it, uh, it, it threw me for a loop, kind of understandably, um, or at least it's understandable in hindsight. At the time, I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself to just push through and pretend that nothing had happened and just carry on, uh, which obviously was not overly realistic. Um, so about six months went by where, you know, on the outside, I was throwing myself into my work and trying to support my team as much as I could through what had happened. And uh, on the inside, I was, I was really struggling. Um, I was dealing with some hypervigilance, which for me basically looked like my head was on a swivel whenever I was outside my apartment. I was really determined that no one was gonna be able to you know, sneak up on me um, or uh, catch me off guard again uh, because that workplace was somewhere that I, I had felt safe. Uh, so it was really disconcerting uh, to have something like that happen there. Um, I also wasn't, wasn't exactly sleeping. Um, and it was a combination of things for me. I was having really vivid nightmares about the incident whenever I did try to sleep. But a lot of the time that I was supposed to be sleeping, instead I was you know up late at night 
scrolling on my phone endlessly reading news story after news story. And of course, you know, these weren't the nice, the nice stories about, you know, kittens being rescued from trees or anything. Um, it was uh, reading about the Ebola outbreak that was happening at that time or terror attacks or, you know, acts of violence that were happening in the city. So given that those are my triggers, you can imagine that uh, the current news cycle has been a very interesting challenge for me. <laughs> but I digress. Um, I, I continued like that, trying to pretend that, that I was doing okay for, for about six months. And everything kind of fell apart for me um, at Thanksgiving that year. We were at the dinner table and one of my relatives started talking about the terror attacks that had been happening and I completely dissociated. Um, I don't know if anyone else on the call has experience with that sensation. Um, if you don't, I'm very envious. <laughs> um, but think of it as your body is physically there, but your brain is just like, you know what, peace out, I'm done. Uh, we're just, we're, we're shutting this down for a little while. So my parents managed to get me out into the car and uh, drive me back to their house. And they convinced me to give a, a, a call to our, our workplace EAP. Um, now I'd received about, I don't remember the exact number. It was somewhere between five and 10 sessions right after the incident occurred. Um, and then I was told that, that that was all that I was entitled to. Um, I hope that all of us can kind of agree that five to 10 sessions probably isn't enough time to process a, 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 a pretty big trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I made the appointment still, uh, knowing that I was gonna kind of have to take care of that on my own. Um, and after talking to me for just a few minutes, the counselor realized that I was a danger to myself. Um, I was telling her just how desperate I was not to feel the way that I was feeling anymore, how hopeless I felt, how, you know, I was just, I was convinced that I was destined to die early. Um, and that I just, I had these all consuming thoughts about, about my own death. And she was like, oh, oh, okay, um, you, you, you really need to go talk to someone who can give you a little more um, close, um, like longer term care than I'm able to provide. So she directed me to go to the crisis center or crisis clinic, I'm sorry, at CAMH. So thankfully, I listened to her. Um, I, uh, I, I took a cab over there straight from her office and uh, was, was able to, to get treatment through them. Um, it, was, it was outpatient treatment, which I felt really lucky about uh, because it meant that I, I got to stay with my parents for a month who were super supportive in all, all through the journey. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of a broad overview. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it's a great story. And I, and I think that, you know, like I've talked to numerous EAPs as well. And what I didn't realize at the time was these are not designed to actually process through trauma or process through the feelings. They're basically some version of a first aid for mental health. And I think like for me, I always thought of them as like, well, if I just call the EAP and they give me the eight sessions that they can give me, then I'm supposed to be fixed. And I don't like, I want to really make sure people understand that it's a first step and they should refer you to someone more like a psychologist, a psychiatrist, like these type of facilities. And that's really something that should be done. Yeah. I think, I mean, uh... I don't want to criticize this this person. I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure she was doing the best that she could and, and what she felt was the best. But I almost wish that as of our, our first session of the, I don't know, eight or 10 or whatever I got, um, that she had referred me to someone else then. Um, I, think, I think that would have been um, a, a better first step for me, uh, given the level of trauma that I was dealing with and the, the level of anxiety and depression. And that's something, you know, Julie, you say that, and it's something that I think I've experienced as well is I don't think there's a clear path to mental health treatment that is well understood by the general population, or even necessarily some of the people who are providers in that path. 
And I think it's very much like what I experienced has been very similar. It's trial and error. And then once people realize that they're out of their depths, that's when they go, Hey, like I, you got to go somewhere else. I also, I also wanted to talk a little bit too about, you know, just as like in your story and in your experience, how you yourself tried to manage some of the feelings and the emotions that you were going through, which was what a lot of high performers do in terms of doubling down on the strategies that you know can mask those those feelings and those symptoms from other people. Um, and I think it would be really interesting for you to just kind of share a little bit about that and and what that felt like for you. Yeah, I was feeling a ton of pressure to keep uh, performing at the level that I had been. Um, and I recognized that that was completely internal pressure that was not coming from the place that I was working. I, I, I want to make that really clear. I'm not throwing them under the bus here. Um, but yeah, it, it felt like a lot of pressure. And I've used the analogy before that it was like, and this is really gross, so I really apologize if anyone's squeamish, but it was like I had dropped raw meat on my kitchen floor. And instead of cleaning it up and instead of dealing with it at the time, I just kind of threw a rug over top of it for about six months and let it fester and rot and all those lovely things that I'm sure you can picture. Um, and I think looking back, had I really dealt with that trauma properly at the time that it happened, I might not have had to get to that space where it was so desperate and, um, you know, a, a much larger issue to unpack uh, because I, I also developed a lot of um, not overly productive coping strategies like the endless scrolling and the hypervigilance and honestly, even just the pressure that I was putting on myself at work was really counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we'll go ahead, Lauren. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, we got, we got a question in the chat and it's talking about PTSD. And what it says is, do you are like, are you on the path to full recovery or is it something that you manage in your day-to-day -day life? Um, Honestly, it kind of depends where I'm, where I'm feeling that day, uh, whether I would say that I am recovered or on the path to recovery. I think realistically, it, it is something that I am going to be living with for the rest of my life. It's, you know, part of me in the same way that, you know, my, my hair and my eyes and my, I don't know, personality or whatever are a part of me. Um, and, you know, I, 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 often wish it wasn't there, but at the end of the day, I also think that that's okay. Like it's just another part of me that I need to embrace and accept and, um, you know, pay a little, pay a little bit of attention to. Mm -hmm. So although I'm doing significantly better uh, than I was six years ago, thank goodness. Um, I, I do still have things that are very triggering for me. Um, anyone who has ever worked with me and uh, tap me on the shoulder when I'm really focused on something and see me scream and jump back. Uh, they will fully understand what I'm talking about. Um, I feel a little bad. It's, it's probably almost a little traumatic for them when I do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's constant management of those, those triggers and, and those emotions, um, which I think kind of all of us have to do, whether were um, someone who lives with PTSD or depression or anxiety or, or really just moving through the world no matter what you're dealing with. Um, staying in your, your best health, like mental health, physical health, etc., cetera, um, really takes a lot of work, but it's really important work and really, um, really, really valuable work and really fulfilling as well to realize that, you know, you have all of the tools. You just have to make sure that you're practicing them constantly. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I yeah. noticed that, um, like when you when you introduce, you know, your story and who you're talking about, you are very consistent with using person first language, and you are somebody who is living with PTSD. And and how do you go about? Um, you know, managing those, those symptoms and, and, you know, managing your triggers so that even though, yes, you are someone who's living with this now, 
how do you stay at that high performing level that, you know, that's where you want to be? So um, not to tie this too much back to, uh, to maintenance, which is fixes industry, but it is kind of like maintaining yourself like you're a really valuable asset because, you know, PS you are, um, and you know, you're not just going to, you know, drive your car into the ground. If there is a slight leak in the roof, you're not just going to ignore it until your roof caves in. You'll take those steps to proactively address things. But for some reason, we we feel guilty when we do that for ourselves. And I I, I don't fully understand it, even though I do it too. Um, so really taking that time to make sure that I am doing all of those self-care things that, that I need to do. And I know that self-care kind of gets a bad rap and, um, you know, people kind of get a little eye-rolly about it, but it it really is important and it it doesn't have to be like, I don't know, bubble baths and watching trash TV, which I mean, (laughs) I also, um, but it can be something like making sure that you're making time to have um, an appointment with your therapist, which is something that I do really consistently. it was obviously um, much more frequent when uh, when I had first come through this, um, but now, depending on what's going on, it's typically about once or twice a month. Uh, we did up our frequency when uh, COVID hit because that was a huge trigger for me. Uh, I it brought back a lot of those feelings about um, you know fear of dying early lack of control um, and that kind of doom scrolling that I was doing uh, came back in a big way too. So just being really consistent and um, reminding myself that it, it, it is okay to make time for myself and to, to set the appropriate boundaries that I need so that I can make that time. And I think that's something important, right? Like even like we'll, we'll go, we'll go a little nerd out about maintenance. Uh, so like, obviously my job, my daily day job is an asset manager and I deal a lot with maintenance, like preventative maintenance, predictive maintenance, that type of stuff. And I still like, in terms of myself, like the pre- preventative quote unquote maintenance that I do is mostly physical. Like it's going to the gym, it's eating well, it's those type of things. But yet for our mental health, like only the last year have I really gotten into, you know, meditation. And like, now I started doing therapy. And I think like, it's something like you're right. It's, it's about like, we do this and we project on other people. And I think like you mentioned this the other time, right. Is like you were talking about your team and focusing on them before you focused on yourself. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely someone who um, puts the needs of others before my own to my own detriment. Um, I really, I did put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that, you know, because a number of people from the team had also witnessed uh, this incident that happened. Um, And I just want to touch on, I'm not going to go into any details about what happened in in case anyone's curious. Um, I just wanted to put it out there that like, I don't really want to talk about the incident itself. Um, But yeah, a, a few members of the team had also witnessed it and Um, I just, I felt a lot of pressure to continue, um, you know, taking on work for them if I could and being supportive. And even it's just, when I look back, I I can't believe this, but I didn't take any time off after witnessing what I did. Um, Sure that the office was closed for the police investigation for, I think, two and a half days or something and for like cleaning and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I still worked remotely during that time and I still like, I worked full days, if not more, like looking back, I don't really know why I did that other than I just, I felt like the team's needs were more important than my own. And that if, sorry. Um, and just, there was that fear too, that if I, you know, if I, if I stopped performing at that level for even one second, that everything was just going to come crashing down and I would just lose it all, which is, you know, no pressure at all. None. So, so Lauren, like you work with a lot of high performers from a very similar 
perspective. Do you want to just talk about like how common do you see this and like how, like, I guess, how common is it for people to just really double down on work? Yeah, I think, um, so for those of you who don't know, I work with um, high performing athletes and business individuals and um, entrepreneurs. Um, and what I see a lot in, in that community is this tendency to throw yourself into work, or if you're an athlete, throw yourself into more um, practices, more lifts, um, whatever they can. For student athletes, it's more homework um, because you know, they're, they're trying to find a way to convey to everybody else that everything is fine. Um, because a lot of the time, um, high performers are perfectionists and those strategies work to a certain extent. They're why you get so good at what you do, but when they don't work, they really don't work. Um, and, and that's when you start to see, you know, the, the symptoms of like shutting your emotions off or completely forgetting about yourself and not taking care of yourself to, um, that point where you, you hit the edge and you go over the edge and you can't handle it anymore. Um, and I think that that's something that's really, really common with athletes. I experienced it myself as an athlete. Um, and it's, it's just a matter of these are the, the strategies and the systems that we use to succeed that inevitably end up hurting us if we don't check them. Um, so it's, it's totally super common um, among high performers. For sure. So Julie, like we got a, another question in the chat and it, it's, it's basically around the same topic about, you know, really leaning into other people and leaning into your work. And what does it say? Like, how much do you think the dominant culture of leave your problems at home when you're at work, you have to work here? Like you were, you kind of mentioned that it wasn't really work pressure. It was more your internal pressure, but was there any pressure from, leadership at your company? I don't know if I'd say it was necessarily pressure from them, but I think in a way I took my cues from them. And other than really kind of making a statement to the media, like I don't, I remember one leader kind of taking me aside and being like, like, don't be afraid to take time for yourself. And of course that person became my favorite leader. Um, but other other than him, I, I don't really remember anyone Kind of talking about it it was it you know it was kind of like that meat that i swept under the rug we just we just it was it was this thing that you know the thing we shall not speak of um so yeah it, i wouldn't say that they necessarily put pressure but i definitely took a lot of cues from them so i would say if you're in a, a leadership like um position the um you know, your, your employees are really looking to you for direction. So if they see that you don't have any work-life balance, that you're answering emails at two o'clock in the morning, that you're, um, I don't know, uh, just, you know, going all out 24 seven to, to meet some deadline, they're kind of going to think that that's what's expected of them too. Um, and I think sometimes we, we forget that we think, you know, oh, like, you know, I've told them that they don't need to do that. So, so they, they understand, but they really, they really watch what you're doing more so than what you listen to what you're saying. Yeah. I love that. And, and like, we'll, we'll dive a little bit into leadership here. And I, and I think like for me, empathy is such a huge part of leadership. And I, I see this a lot in industry and I kind of think I understand why they didn't talk about it is because a lot of us as leaders, we go, well, I have no skill set to, to manage. Like if, what if happens if Julie comes to me and says, I have PTSD, what am I going to do? I'm not a mental health guy. I don't know what to do for her. Right. And, and like a lot of us were trained as fixers. We're trained as people like you come to us, we fix your problem. And that's why we get promoted. And that's why we succeed. And I think like the hardest thing for us as fixers is to just be empathetic and to be there for the person and support them and hear them and see them. And yet that will actually fix a lot of the problems. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. It's, it's, 
it's funny because I do remember in a leadership meeting once at, at a past workplace, um, you know, we, we were kind of just talking about management styles and someone said like, well, you know, I don't, I don't want my employees to come talk to me about their personal life. Cause like, like, that's not my job. I'm not their therapist. And I, re- I remember saying, but they're still humans. <laughs> like, you know, they're, they're not robots who are coming in and just, you know, totally focused on, on your work all the time. <laughs> that's, that's not how humans talk to each other. And it's not in like, if you're really concerned about performance of your pl- workplace and your employees, it's not the way to get in performance either. And so like, it's not only is it detrimental to the human beings and their mental health and their, you know, happiness and their fulfillment and all this stuff. It's also detrimental to the outcomes of your business. Yeah. To highlight that too, Rob, like one of the things that I have to tell people and remind them of is, is look, humans can separate themselves from work, but you cannot separate the person from who they are. Like they are a human being first before they are your employee. So whenever I come across leaders and um, like business owners that say like, well, I don't really want to deal with the human side of my employees, that's red flags all over the place because there is no way where you're going to get employees who are effective at what they do, living a healthy lifestyle while they're working for you and, and being, you know, the best worker possible, if you're not paying attention to that human side, which mm-hmm. is literally the entire part of them. So, yeah. So Julia, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about just like what treatments worked for you. Cause I know that a lot of us, like, like my story, you would have heard last week if you listened to the podcast, but if you're alive, like I've tried somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 medications. I've tried EAPs. I've tried life coaches. I've tried churches. I've tried talk therapy with psychiatrists, psychologists. Like the list has been, to be honest, ridiculous. Um, but what has really worked for you? Uh, so for me with the PTSD specifically, it was a combination of medication and exposure therapy. Um, like you, there was trial and error for me on the medication. Um, I was initially put on one medication um, by a a family physician. And uh, as it turns out, because that was not this physician's area of expertise, um, that medication was known to um, increase um, symptoms of PTSD, um, specifically uh, the nightmares. So we upped my dosage on that because at first I just thought it wasn't working. Um, and I ended up having these just terrible hallucinogenic nightmares, which on top of everything else was really the last thing that I needed. Um, and this might be familiar to you as well, but like when, when you're switching from one antidepressant to another, it's not like you can just stop taking one and start taking the other. You have to taper off even though you're having these side effects. So I knew that I was in for, you know, two to four, I can't remember exactly how long the taper period was, but I was in for like at minimum two more weeks of, of dealing with these nightmares while I tapered off. And then um, I ended up being switched over to Prozac, which is what worked really well for me. Um, I was on it for a number of years. Um, and actually I, under the supervision of, of a doctor, um, tapered off of that and was without um, any, any medication for about a year and a half um, until I had another thing happen that was um, not great. And uh, so I, I ended up going back on the medication for another two years. Um, and now I'm, I'm just maintaining with, um, with talk therapy because I've finished, I finished the exposure therapy after about a year, which um, is, is just as fun as it sounds. Um, you make a list of, of all of your triggers and then one by one have to have to conquer them. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's grueling work, but it's, it's actually really rewarding once you come out the other side of it. Um, but yeah, it, a lot of things were trial and error for me. Like after I finished exposure therapy and, uh, knew that I needed to find, um, a counselor that I could, I could speak to 
just to kind of maintain. Um, I went through a few different ones and I think that's, that's something that people don't realize that they can do. Um, they seem to just think like, well, you know, I got to sign this person through my, my EAP or like I found this random person and I went for one session. So I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm married to this now. Um, but there's nothing wrong with going to, to one session with, with a, a social worker or a psychologist or, you know, whatever kind of practitioner you choose. And if you don't feel that connection, just try someone else. Um, I finally found someone that I, I really connect with well. Her approach works really well for me. And my favorite thing about her is that she is very direct and will call me on my crap. Which <laughs> <laughs> is something that I need. <laughs> and no, I, I 100% agree. Like I, I think with talk therapy, even with a like a family doctor, it's also like having that connection and, and understanding that they understand you is so important. And like, that's something also with the therapy, right? It's like, there are many different types of therapy. And the more that I get into it, the more I learn about them. And it's about finding the one that works for you. Because I know I've had a many conversations about CBT therapy, and I never could implement that myself. It felt very much like a band-aid where what I needed was like something like a cast. Um, and so I, I think that that's another piece too, is finding the method that's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. I'm like you in that um, CBT, it's, it's, it's not my favorite. Um, it's, it hasn't been the thing that, that works really well for me. Um, but yeah, there are so many options. Like, you know, CBT tends to be the, the one that people default to, but you know, there's, there's a wide range of, of practices. Yeah. And I guess, I guess like you talked a little bit about the inpatient care that you received. Like, do you think that, like, I think the one thing that scares a lot of people is that, is like, if I go to the hospital or I go to the doctor, they always ask you this question, do you have a plan? Um, and you have to really walk a very tight line because you don't, you want to tell them like, it, this is serious. Like I am thinking about suicide or whatever, but you don't, some, like I never wanted to end up where they would lock me up. Like, how did you balance that? when they asked you that question? Yeah, I, I was definitely a little nervous, particularly because the crisis clinic was a very stressful place for me. Um, you know, one of, one of my main triggers at the time was, um, you know, kind of erratic behavior and screaming. And there was some of that. Uh, so they ended up, because it's like a, a locked waiting room and you know you you can leave at any time you just have to ask to be let out um and um so eventually i i like i, I mentioned to a nurse like like i i can't sit here like i really need help but like i can't sit here so they let me wait um in a smaller room uh where i was just by myself and i felt a little a little safer um but yeah it I was kind of at the point where I was so desperate that I was willing to try anything. Um, and I was lucky that they did let me do outpatient therapy on the condition that I stayed with somebody um, because I, I live alone. Um, it, even, even I could acknowledge like it's, it's not safe for me to go home to my apartment by myself. Um, so my lovely best friend uh, drove me all the way home to Cambridge from Toronto. And I stayed with my parents for about a month. Um, and my dad was just this, the sweetest. And even though he doesn't love Toronto and doesn't love driving in Toronto, drove me back and forth for all of my appointments, which like, this is always like the part of my story that I get a little bit choked up when I think about it because they just were both so generous and amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it definitely was a concern for me and I was really relieved when they said that I could do it outpatient, um, especially because I don't know how this is possible, but the whole time that I was in that larger waiting room, I swear Dr. Phil was somehow on like for like a four hour marathon and like nothing against anyone who likes Dr. Phil, I'm not a fan. And it, it just really did not add to the experience in a positive. <laughs> so the thought of like 
having days somewhere where possibly Dr. Phil would be playing 24 seven. It was like, no, I'll go somewhere else. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's really important that if, if you're having those, those feelings that, that you're really honest with, with the healthcare provider, because they also understand what's, what's best for you. And it, it, it might actually end up being for the best to, to be in a, a facility like that for a little while. And I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any shame in it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful to, to CAMH for the care that I got while I was there. They were amazing. I, I think it. you touched yeah. on um, something else too that I think is, is overlooked a little bit in terms of, of when people seek mental health care. And, and that is, yes, like finding somebody who you actually truly connect with and feel like really understands you. Um, it's not enough to just sit in front of a therapist and like say, yes, you're going to fix me because you're a therapist. Um, but it's the idea of finding support and community as well, whether it's in, in your therapist and in your parents or in your, in your family somehow with your friends, with your coworkers. How important has having like a community of people that understand what you're going through been for your journey? It's been really important for me. Um, you know, I, I feel really, really grateful to have the people in my life that I do. Um, some of them are on this call because they knew that I was nervous. So they offered to join. So thank you. You know who you are. Um, and I mean, I recognize that this isn't a recruiting session for fix so I will keep it very short but I do feel really grateful to be a fixer um the fixer community is just the the support that I that I receive um through my workplace is phenomenal and like nothing I have ever experienced before and you know the fact that so many of them are, are on this call as well just really speaks to the the supportive environment and the inclusive and, and welcoming environment and I think much like trying to find that that therapist that's a good fit for you, finding that community that's a good fit is important too. Um, I did, you know, there were some friendships that as I was going through all this kind of faded away because they didn't want to take the time to understand what I was going through or, or be patient. But I think that's okay because now the friendships that I have are so much deeper and so much stronger. And I'd rather have a handful of truly amazing friends than, you know, uh, a whole, I don't know, entourage of <laughs> people who are, um, you know, not really, not really in it in a really good way, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I just basically use that as an opportunity to like hype up my friends in my workplace, but I swear it is really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, one, one question I wanted to ask you, and I, I think it's going to be like super valuable, not only for the people who are listening, but, but also like the reason for our podcast is like, what gave you the courage to start talking about this openly? For me, I think it was needing, like when I was going through everything that I was, um, not really having a ton of places to look to, to see other people with similar stories to mine. Like when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I, I kind of didn't believe it because in my mind, it was, you know, something that, that veterans experience and that first responders experience. And I kind of almost felt like I didn't qualify. Like, I'm not sure who I thought was gatekeeping PTSD, but I really thought I was on the other side of that velvet rope, you know? And um, yeah, it, I think hearing from someone or hearing about someone who has a similar experience to you, even if it's not exactly the same is really important and can really help people understand that like, it's, it's okay to need help. It, if you had a broken arm, you wouldn't just ignore it. You would, you would go get it set. Like it's, it's really no different. Um, and I think, I think by, taking the step to to talk publicly about our experiences it, it can enable people to to seek out the help they need themselves like i can't tell like i so 
I have a blog that I haven't updated in over a year, um, but a few times I've written about my experiences and I've had people contact me and say like, hey, like reading this was the push that I needed to connect with a therapist for the first time. Like, thank you. Um, so I don't know, like I, I understand that it's, it's maybe not something that everyone's comfortable talking about, but I, I really think we need to get there, mm-hmm. which is kind of where, where I draw the, that strength from, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're drawing the courage and meaning, right. And that's where we've come from for this show, right. Is, is Lauren and I, we had very similar experiences like with depression and, and we partnered together to talk about this from the, the aspect of the people that pretend like everything is perfect. Like Lauren was talking her story, like basically she was doing tryouts for team Canada and yet dealing with depression. And it's like, we didn't check the box of what it meant to be depressed. And just like you didn't think you checked the box for fitting what PTSD is. And this is what the show is about. It's, it's, we, we don't, we have this perception of what these boxes are. And even the medical community has these perceptions of what these boxes are. And it's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. The last thing I wanted to ask you before we get into some of the plugs, like what are some of your top tips for if someone's struggling out there, like what should, what do you think they, they should do? Yeah. So I have, I have three main tips. Um, cause I, have been thinking about this. Uh, the number one would be talk to someone. It, if you're not ready to talk to a mental health professional, just talk to anyone, talk to your friend, talk to your family member, talk to your, I don't know, your family doctor, your yoga teacher, your just somebody. Um, because you'll find that once you start that conversation, it becomes a lot easier to continue the conversation. Um, it's, it's, it really is remarkable how, you know, once you've taken that first step, all of the other steps become a lot easier. Um, the second would be to make sure that you're doing that daily maintenance for yourself. So whether it's, um, you know, for me, one of the things that can start to make me feel down is if I hit the snooze button too much. So <laughs> I really, I really have to be mindful of like, no, my alarm has gone off. It's time to get up. Or um, for some reason, having having dishes in my sink just like does not work for me. So like you'll you'll find the things that work for you and make time for them, even if even if it's as small as like you know having your ritual of a morning coffee or making sure that you connect with a friend once a week, even if it's just over Zoom. Like just think about what works for you and make sure that you take the time to do it because you're, you're really important. You, you're, you know, you're, you're the most important person in your own life. Um, and then the third thing would be to remember that you aren't alone in this. We all either, uh, you know, based on the fact that one in five of us of any given year Um, is going to experience mental illness. All of us either have experienced it firsthand or know someone who has. It is so much more common than we realize. And I think a lot of times when you're feeling depressed or anxious, your brain starts to tell you that it's like a defect with you, that there's something wrong with you, but it's it's something that so many of us experience. So it it can't be a a defect. It's just a, a part of us. And I think learning how to embrace that part of you and take care and nurture that part of you will be your strength in the long run. I love that. You're yeah, you're definitely the most important person. And and it's really funny, right? Like it ties it all back together from the beginning as realizing that you are important is like one of the key aspects to like to therapy, to all this stuff, right? It's like, we tend to put value on other people ahead of ourselves and we can't help others unless we help ourselves first. But that's, I mean, so we're here today and we're raising money. We're, we're targeting a hundred thousand and for people who are, yeah, like I'm fired up about it too. And for people who are in the chat, um, I'll just bang in the, the page here. 
If you want to donate to it, we would obviously really appreciate it. And so FIX is going to be matching donations up to 15,000 here. Now, Julie, do you have a favorite charity that, that you want to talk about here? Well, I'm, I'm actually really, really proud of the list that we've come up with at that link that you just shared. I love how diverse the, the support is, um, how, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, representation of different groups um, and that we're, you know, we're making sure that we're, we're kind of hitting as many, as many um, communities as we can. Um, if I had to pick though, between the four, um, and it, it was it was tough to pick, um, but I would say um, crisis service crisis services Canada. I don't know why that's such a tongue twister for me this afternoon, um, but that would be the one that I would pick because there is such a gap in access to care in general. The wait list to see someone through OHIP is just astronomically long, so they're providing really crucial support that's available 24 seven and really helping to bridge that, that gap that we have. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, as a society and, you know, as, uh, as a, a country, we can, we can advocate to reduce those, those wait times and to provide better access. Um, but in the meantime, services like this are, are just so important. I, I remember calling a couple times um, years, I, I guess, probably around 2014. Um, and the, their service is amazing. Um, and it's, it's just, it's so important. Yeah, and, and that was like, they, Crisis Service Canada was actually our pick for the charities. And the reason was, is I actually used their text line a few weeks ago. And like, I know sometimes it's uncomfortable and it's still like, it's weird, right? Cause I can come on a podcast and talk about how I think about suicide and all this stuff, but yet it's weird to still ask for help. And it's still, it still feels like you need to work up the courage. And this was the first time I had ever talked to a helpline and I texted them because I felt like more comfortable doing that. And I did, I got amazing support back and I'm really thankful for them because they supported me when I needed it most. I was really glad when you, when you uh, picked that as your choice for charity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I guess the other, the other thing I want to just bang into the chat here is if like, obviously Julie, your story was amazing next week at November 19th at 2 p.m. We got Steve Ricard, one of your colleagues is coming on the show. And then November 25th at 2 p.m. Eastern, we're gonna have someone from one of the charities that'll be on to talk about their charity and and some other stuff. So if people wanna sign up for those, you can just bang into the, the sign up form there and we'll send you out the Zoom links shortly. Now, Julie, last thing I wanna ask you, is there anything like where can people find you if they want to reach out? Do you want to talk a little bit about Fix for a minute? Sure. Um, so, I mean, Fix is the best place that I've ever worked. Um, and uh, so we do maintenance software. Um, we are also very focused on sustainability and uh, social impact. Uh, so actually our, our manager of uh, sustainability and social impact is on the call. Hi, Katie. Thank you. Um, and I just... I'm really proud to work for a company that has such a strong devotion to their mission. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just about the profits and it's not just about uh, the day to day. They really, um, they really believe, like we really believe in our, our higher purpose and it's, uh, it's very rewarding. If anyone does want to reach out to me, um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, if you're curious at all about more information about my story, you can find it at juliempalmer.blog. Again, I haven't updated it in about a year and a half, or maybe a little bit more. Um, but um, I do have some information there about my story with mental health, um, my challenges coming off of and going back on Prozac, um, and just some general tips for, for mental health there as well. 
I love it. And yeah, like, well, if you're listening to this on, on the podcast or recording, we'll throw those links into the podcast notes. So you'll be able to check out not well, you can follow Julie on LinkedIn, but you can also check out her story and her blog. Lauren, how about you? Where can people find you? Uh, people can find me uh, through email at lauren at elitehighperformance.com or on Instagram at laurenwilly17. Um, if you feel like reaching out to talk about anything, please feel free. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everybody for hopping on. Um, it is equally as important for people to share their stories as it is for other people to show up and listen. So you guys are all doing the part and playing your role and helping end the stigma too. So thank you so much for coming. I love that one. Yeah, it's true. I mean, everyone, I really appreciate you joining us live today. Julie, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It was definitely one that, and, and I, I've started using your metaphor of the rotting meat under the carpet. So just so you know, I'm giving you credit here. It's a good one. <laughs> if, if anything is my legacy, I'm glad that it's that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and yeah, like for me, obviously, Dismantling the High Performance Narrative is the new podcast. You can follow Dismantling the High Performance Narrative on LinkedIn. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're rolling on Monday. The first podcast is going to be coming up and we're going to be weekly since or weekly from Monday. So I hope you join us. You're going to hear a lot of great conversations like this one. And I'm like, I'm super fired up to bring this show to the world because I think not only can we help a lot of people and really just destigmatize mental health, but there's so many of us that suffer and that want to share our stories about this because we know that the impact it's going to have and that's the place to do it. Um, yeah, if you want to advertise on the show, if you have any questions for Lauren and I, if you want to book Lauren and I as speakers or you want to tell us anything, you want to share your story with us, you can email us highperformancenarrative at gmail.com. And if you want to check out my maintenance and reliability and leadership services, you can go to robsreliability.com and hit me up there, or you can just send me an email. Either way works. So Julie, we'll get you out of here. We'll get everyone out of here a little bit early today. Julie, I, I, thanks for joining us so much and being so courageous with your story. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Julie. You did amazing. You. It was all you. <laughs> it was all you. It was all you, Julie. And I guess, I guess the last thing, we'll give you the final word here. Do you have anything that you want to leave the people here with? Find at least one thing that can reliably bring you joy and do it every single day. I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so everyone's buying a dog. <laughs> well, <laughs> Julie, we really appreciate you joining us. Everybody who joined us live, thank you. Definitely sign up for the ones next week and the week after. And definitely like hit that donate button. There are four amazing charities there. Fix is, is matching donations. So your money's going to go twice as far. And also like we're, 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 we're well on our way to hitting 100,000. I just want to throw that out there. So it's not like we're going to only come up with you know, a couple of grand, we're going to, we're going to definitely get up there. So we would love to have your donation too. So everyone, thank you so much, Julie. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you so much. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Take care.